All right. Well, once again, welcome to Harvest. Again, my name is Pastor Micah. Um, I'm really, really excited today because today our church starts into a brand new chapter um, for us as a developing church plant. Um, many of you probably don't know this. Some of you may. Um, over the last, actually, let me back up. For the last couple years, uh, I and then the elders with me have been praying that God would raise up more men from within our church to preach God's word and to counsel people in God's word. And so then about a year ago, we started on a process where I actually started taking a couple of our men through a training, a preaching track, um, teaching and training them how to preach God's word. And so today is the fruition of that. We're going to hear the first original raised up Harvest Bible Chapel, St. Louis South preacher among us today. Um, and uh, I've already heard, he already had to preach twice to us in the basement with just three of us on the couch, which is like way harder than preaching to you guys. So, um, and so I have the utmost confidence that he is going to bring God's word to us today in a strong, biblical, and God-honoring way. Can you please welcome our own Chris Hurst? Well, good morning. Is this on? Good. Um, and uh, I just want to say thank you to Micah for saying those kind words. And really thank you to this church because it's been an awesome journey. And I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for all of you guys being here and supporting and being part of the church. So thank you for that. Um, I'm really excited to get into God's Word this morning, and I know you are too, so let's get right at it. We're going to be uh, continuing our series called Epic, God Wrote a Story. And this morning we're going to be in the book of Exodus. So if you go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus, I'm going to be there in just a second. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one from underneath the seats around you. I definitely would love for each and every one of you guys to be uh, in the Word with us, okay? All right. So next week, uh, my family and I, we're headed to Florida, and we are so excited, right? If you're going to be in the heat, at least you could be in the pool, right? Uh, we've been talking about this for a long time. The kids have planned all this stuff. They know what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, what they're going to do, where they're going to sleep. We're excited about it. Um, but a couple of years ago, we were on our way to Florida, and it didn't go so well. Uh, we were about four or five hours into our trip, and... Uh, Listen, I, I'm not a car guy. I can just say that the van exploded. We're, we're on the highway, black smoke pouring out the back. The accelerator doesn't work. The girls are screaming in the back. It was chaos. But by God's grace, we happened to be right there at an exit, which was awesome. And we, I was able to coast right off of it into the only thing that was at this exit, this lonely gas station, right? So we pull into this gas station. The van dies, and I not a car guy, never figured out what was wrong with it, it never came back on, okay? So we pour out, and uh, the kids, man, they tried so hard, they were positive, they were like, okay, we, this, this happened to us, it's not our fault, we're, we're gonna get through this, but as an hour goes by, and another hour goes by, they start to crack. And at one point, I turn to them, and this is what I see. I mean, <laughs> come on, right? You can see it on their faces, they're hot, they're frustrated, they're tired, they're sad because maybe we're not going to Florida right? But um, again, we were in the middle of nowhere, so after probably another hour, this jankety tow truck comes pulling in, and if you had seen the look on my kids' faces, then you would have known that we had been rescued. We hit the lottery, right? They didn't care. We all crammed into one side of this tow truck, and this is what we looked like. 
I mean, right? We didn't even care we were on top of each other because we were going to Florida, okay? So that's a fun story that I like to talk about. We'll talk about it forever with our family because it's a story of rescue. And uh, this morning, we're going to be digging into God's Word, and we're going to be talking about a story of rescue on a way bigger scale than that, right? The exodus or the rescue of the Israelites from Egypt is one of the most powerful redemption stories in the whole Old Testament. And the reason why we love it is because it so clearly points to our redemption in Jesus Christ uh, today. And so what, the thing I want you to remember this morning is this, that um, r God rescues me so I will worship him. God rescues me so I will worship him. Um, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to go to verse 1. And our first point this morning is this. Going my way leads to bondage. Going my way leads to bondage. So let's read verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Okay, so some of you guys might remember last week. So I'm going to read more, but we're going to stop here. Um, last week, Micah talked about God making this covenant promise with Abraham. And now we're over here, and Jacob and the Israelites, they're down in Egypt. So how did we get from here to there? And I think it's really important for our story this morning that we understand how they got there. Okay? So here we go. I'm going to give you 35 chapters of Genesis in two minutes-ish. No one time me, please. So... We start off here with God making this covenant promise with Abraham. And as guarantee of that covenant, Abraham and Sarah in their old age, they have a son. His name is Isaac, right? Then Isaac grows up. He has twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And also as promised by God, the younger son, Jacob, inherits the birthright, carries on the promise. Jacob then grows up, and in a fantastic story, he wrestles with God, and he's renamed Israel. And he has 12 sons, 12 sons. And one of them is Joseph, his clear favorite. And it's not good to have favorites, right, parents? And so he's so much his favorite that all the brothers get super jealous and they sell him into slavery into Egypt. Don't do that, siblings. But they sell him into slavery, right? And if that wasn't bad enough, Jacob is a, or Joseph is a slave. He then gets accused of things he didn't do. And now he's a slave in Egypt in prison. And I think it's easy to go back here and say, well, wait, what about this promise? Has God forgotten about this promise? Where is he? But we all know what's going to happen. And we know that God, nothing's lost on him, right? He, nothing surprises him. It's all part of his master plan. And if you remember from last week, Pastor Micah, in uh, the covenant with Abraham, God even says to Abraham, hey, your descendants, you're going to end up down in a foreign land, and you're going to be slaves, and I'm going to rescue you. So God knows this is going to happen, and it's part of his plan. So then God takes Joseph as this slave in prison, and then through a series of a bunch of events, I'm skipping over like 10 chapters right here, then he elevates Joseph to number two in all command of Egypt, second in power only to Pharaoh in the most powerful country in the whole world at that time. That's a pretty sweet change, right? So he's now this big cheese, and God uses him in that position to rescue all of Egypt and that whole land from this severe famine. And as part of that famine, the, the Israelites, Jacob, they're up in Canaan, which is kind of basically Israel today, and they come down because they're starving and they need food. And so that's how the family of Jacob gets down to Israel, or Egypt. That was about two minutes. Okay, so we're going to get back into our text. We're going to go to verse 6. Verse 6 of Exodus 1. 
It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. When the Israelites, when they first arrive in Egypt, they're exactly what God said they were going to be. They're strangers in a foreign land, right? Listen, they were starving shepherds. They were just coming down to get food. They thought Joseph was dead. They had written him off. They had no idea. They were just coming down to get food. And then through a series of more events in Genesis, um, everybody kind of connects the dots that this is the family of Joseph, the most loved man in all of Egypt. And so these poor shepherds that are now down here in Canaan just looking for food, in, or in Egypt, sorry, uh, in about a second, they are turned into honored guests. They're at the top of the social ladder, right? Um, Pharaoh, he says, hey, listen, I want all of you to come down and live here, and I'm going to give you land. I'm not going to just give you the best, the, the, any land. I'm going to give you the best land in all of Egypt. And he calls it Goshen. And he says, I want you to eat off the fat of the land. Okay. That's not hard for someone to turn down, right? And so they stay. They stay, and that foreign land they're in becomes their homeland. And the longer they stay, the more numerous they get, the more affected by the Egyptian culture that they get. And I think it's also important that we see that. So let me just share with you a few examples in Scripture where we see the Israelites descending into this Egyptian culture. First, over in Genesis, um, when Jacob, the patriarch, when he dies, the whole family takes him back to Canaan to bury him. Right? He's a big deal. He wants to be buried. His last wish is to be buried with his fathers, and so they do that. And it says they have seven days of mourning. And so while they're mourning, the Canaanites, the people that are still back there, they're watching them. And it says this in Genesis 50, verse 11. It says, When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. You guys catch that? Right? These are the Israelites. Listen, they're from Canaan. They come down to Egypt. They're here for a while. And when they go back, they're so much like the Egyptians that they're mistaken for Egyptians. They look like, they dressed like, they mourned like Egyptians. Right? It's a big deal. But it goes even further. It doesn't stop with just culture. It starts to affect their religion. And that's a much bigger deal. In the book of Joshua... Okay, now, spoiler alert, I hate to ruin the story for you, but all these Israelites, they're going to get out of Egypt, and they're going to wander in the desert a bunch, and they're going to finally get into this promised land that God has given them. But when they're in there, Joshua, he's the leader at the time, and he's going to kind of give them a charge, and he's going to say, here's the kind of people we're going to be for God. And in chapter 24, 14, he says this. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, and in faithfulness. Got it. We can do that. But then put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua is saying, hey, we don't want to be like what we were in Egypt. We don't want to be worshiping other gods. And that's what they were doing. Here's another example. In Ezekiel 20, God is speaking to the Israelites, really a summary of the whole Old Testament. And he's reminding God how faithful he's been to the Israelites. And in that reminder, he's talking to them about their time in Egypt before they come out. 
In Ezekiel 20, verses 7 and 8, it says this. This is God talking to the Israelites. It says, And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So here's where we're at. The Israelites, God's chosen people, they've come down to Egypt. God has carved out a special place for them to be, right? And God picked it. They've come down to Egypt. They've gotten so influenced by the culture, so privileged, so comfortable. Why would they leave Egypt, right? Why would they leave? Like, nah, we'll stay here. This is a pretty sweet gig. But listen, God has something so much better for them, and he has the same thing for us. He has something so much better for them that he's going to get their attention. Let's move on to verse 8. Okay, so we're going to do a little experiment this morning. Um, we're going to read verse 8 like I read it in my head, right? This is how I read the Bible, and you guys are just going to have to get in my head, and I want you to experience what I experience when I read it. Okay, here we go, verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Right? You guys didn't know that the Bible has a soundtrack? Because it definitely does in my head. But do you guys hear that? You hear that music? What that's saying is, okay, something bad's about to happen. With this verse, our story is really going to change. Let's go on. Uh, so, hold on. So, I'm sorry. I missed one part. I got so excited about the music. The, it says the new king. Now, the new king and Pharaoh, same thing, right? King Pharaoh, same thing. says the new Pharaoh says he doesn't know Joseph. And later on, it's going to say he doesn't even know the God of Joseph. Further evidence that the Israelites had lost their mission and lost their identity, right? This new king doesn't even know God. And so, let's go on to verse 9. And this is Pharaoh. He says, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So Pharaoh goes into phase one. This is the first phase. He goes, Therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Phase one didn't work. So now they're going to go another step. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Pharaoh's scared of these people. He's scared. He's like, they're going to rise up and rebel. There's too many of them, so I need to crush them. And uh, don't miss some of this brutal terminology that's used here, right? They had heavy burdens. It says they were bitter with hard service. They were desperate. The term ruthless is used only six times in the whole Bible and twice right here. It literally means to break apart. God is trying to, or not God, Pharaoh is trying to break the Israelites. And he's going to go a step further. We're not going to read this, but in phase three is what I call it. He's going to go further and try to break them emotionally and mentally. He's going to 
try to kill every newborn son of the Israel people. Under the span of one king, the Israelites have gone from this immensely comfortable, privileged people to a people in total captivity, tortured, helpless. In Exodus 6, when God sends Moses to finally start his plan of rescue, it says that they're so broken that they don't even hear him. They don't even listen to him. They're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. They don't believe that they're, it's possible to be rescued, and they certainly aren't capable of rescuing themselves. So, some of you guys know I grew up in Atlanta, and Atlanta's hot. So, one thing you might also know about me is that I hate heat. If it weren't for fear that you guys wouldn't come back, this gym would be at like 50 degrees. But because I love you, I compromise. But... When, I, when it's time to go to college, I moved up to Chicago. Get me as far away as possible. Give me those cold winters. Yes, that's what I would prefer. And if you want proof that God has a sense of humor, then I met a beautiful woman who's from here, and boom, I'm right back in it, right? I can't escape it. But when I moved to Chicago, listen, I was a true Southern guy. I had never, never been on a plane, never left the southern, never left any state that didn't border Georgia. And when I went to Chicago, man, I was a fish out of water. Um, there were a few things that I did that really made me stick out. First of all, I talked a lot like this. I had a really thick southern accent, and I would say things like, I got ten fingers, and does anybody have a pen I can use? And I said, y'all, I'm not lying, I did. <laughs> I tried to find a sound clip. I could. I said, y'all, here's another thing about Atlanta that you need to know. Hold on. Okay, who can tell me what this is? Seven up, pop, soda. Okay, awesome. You're all wrong. Um, okay, what's this? Soda, orange. Okay, yeah, I, I think I heard the right answer. Most of you are wrong. These are both Coke. If you have a Pepsi, it's a Coke. If you have a Dr. Pepper, it's a Coke. In Atlanta, it's all Coke, right? And so I get to Chicago, and I'm like doing this, and I'm talking about Coke, and they're like, what? But the longer I stayed in Chicago, the more and more I became like a Midwesterner. I've been in the Midwest longer than I've been in the South now, so I don't have the accent anymore. I don't call that Coke. Um, I still like sweet tea, but I, right? And my dad, he, would, he got annoyed at me. He would call me a Yankee. And when I would come home, he would say, you've been Yankified, right? It's so easy to get affected by our culture, right? And sometimes it can go down the wrong way. My dad definitely thought that I went down the wrong way. Going my way leads to bondage. The Israelites, they chose to follow the world. They lost their identity and they ended up in bondage. And the same thing can happen to us. Listen, bondage for us this morning, it looks like anything that takes our focus off of Christ, right? Anything that takes us off our focus. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a stranger or a friend of this foreign land? Is our identity in Christ or is it in the world? It's real easy to get influenced and we don't even realize it. Let me share with you a few things that can really influence us in our culture today. First of all, entertainment. What we put in front of us, what we listen to, how often we do it, 
There's a lot of popular shows out there that the world talks about, they love, they're winning all these awards, everybody talks about it, we want to watch it, and some of them have some not appropriate things in there, right? Words, scenes, and we tell ourselves, I can handle it, I, I can look past that, but sometimes we can't, sometimes we get desensitized by it. I'm not saying don't entertain yourself, right? God gives us good things, but I am saying let's put some filters on what we put in front of us, right? Does it honor the Lord? Does it further the mission? Does it further my identity in Christ? And that's what I'm going to go after. What about friendships? So I have a high schooler, I have a teenager in my house, and in about a hot second, I'm going to have three more. And so um, it's a big topic between Meg and I is who is going to influence our children? Who is going to have the greatest influence on our children? And I'm not saying don't go out and uh, I'm not saying don't witness to the lost, don't befriend the lost. Of course do that. That's what God's called us to do. But I am saying those that are in your inner circle, they've got to be going after the same thing. They've got to be strangers in the land. They've got to have their identity in Christ because they're influencing us. Friendships. Okay, what about finances? If someone were to look at your checkbook, would they know that your identity is clear in Christ? Or do you have to have the latest gadget and, and got to have that and so I'm just going to charge it, I'll figure out how to pay it. Or we could use our money to build our identity in Christ, right? To store up treasures in heaven, to support what we need to support. And then one more thing, what about our time? If someone were to look at your calendar, is it clear what your identity is? Are you prioritizing church attendance, getting in the word, going to a small group, serving others, supporting others? Um, we can all do that, but sometimes what comes above it is kid activities, uh, traveling, career. Those are all good, but not when they come over our identity. Some of us in this room have a really unhealthy addiction to Candy Crush. I don't know anybody, I'm just saying it for a friend. But listen, it can take all kinds of forms, right? We want to be going after what Christ is going after, not our own way. And when the Israelites, when they went their own way and they fell into bondage, did you guys see that it became increasingly brutal? Phase one, I talked about a few different times, they, they just kept getting tougher and tougher until they couldn't bear it any longer. And sometimes love has to allow this to get our attention. Sometimes even in our own lives, God has to allow certain things to happen to show us that there's so much of a better way that he has for us. I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon, and I want to share it with you because it really spoke to me. It's up on the screen. It says, They who are content to be in bondage will never be freed. But when they feel that they cannot and that they will not any longer endure their captivity, then has the hour of freedom struck. Amen. It is an untold blessing when the grace of God makes a man feel that what was once a pleasure has now become a servitude, and what he formerly found to be liberty has now become utter slavery to him. Listen, in God's great grace, he makes sin less and less appealing to us, and the consequences greater and greater until we're crushed by the weight of our sin and we cry out. Are you guys ready for some good news? Good news? Here's the good news. Here's the good news. God doesn't want us to be stuck in bondage, so he provides us a way out, right? God provides us a rescue. He provides us a better way. The captivity of the Israelites, that story doesn't end with them stuck in captivity, and it does not end with us stuck in slavery either. 
So let's keep going. The next point that we have is this. God answers my cry for help. Most of Exodus 2 is about the birth and early life of Moses. Big, significant guy, lots to learn from him. But this morning our story is about God. So we're going to skip to Exodus 2, verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It says that during those many days, do you guys know that it's been 80 more years since we left Exodus 1? 80 more years of ruthless slavery. In this heat, I can't even go out and work in the yard for two hours before I'm not crying mercy, sitting in front of a box fan with this something cold on my face, right? I could never have done this. 80 years of brutal slavery. And listen, they're not just grumbling. They're not just offering a contrite prayer. It says they're groaning. The whole nation of Israel reaches a point of desperation, and they cry out to God. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is clear. This isn't just an aimless cry. They're crying out to God, the God of our fathers. They're repenting. They're returning to him. And do you guys see this? It says God heard them. It says God remembered his covenant. Now listen, he's not saying like God's over here doing whatever, and he's like, wait, what's that? Huh? Oh, right, I totally forgot about you guys. That's not what he's saying, right? When he says he remembers his covenant, he says in his great sovereignty, now is the time to step in. This is the right time, and that's what he means. That's what he's saying. And do you guys see the love of God in this passage? They cry out to God, and it says that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Our suffering isn't lost on God. If you're suffering this morning, it's not lost on God. He's not going to let it keep going without good result. He doesn't leave us. He didn't leave the Israelites, and he hasn't left us. So now the holy God of the universe is going to step on the stage and do what only he can do. He's going to rescue. He's going to answer the Israelites. So here's a question I've asked myself. Why does God answer the Israelites? Listen, it's, we read about this a minute ago. They were going after wrong gods for years. They had forgotten about him. Why does he answer? Why does he answer us even today? We're fallen, broken people. Let me give you three reasons why God answers. One, to keep his promise. God is trustworthy. Over here in Genesis, God told Abraham, he said, you're my people, I'm your God, I'm with you. That's what he's remembering. He's like, I'm not going anywhere, right? What promises does God make us today? You might want to write some of these down. Um, there's a whole bunch of promises. You guys saw it in the video earlier, but here's a few. In Matthew 28, 20, God says he will never leave us. In Romans 10, 9, he promises to save those who call on him. In Philippians 1, 6, he promises to complete a good work in us. And in Philippians 4.19, he promises to meet our needs. You can put your stake in those promises, right? Because God's trustworthy, and he is absolutely going to do what he said he's going to do. And that's what he's doing with the Israelites. Second, 
to bless his people. God is love. I'm not going to put this on screen. I just want to read this over you. This is God through Moses talking to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. Here's what he says to them and to us today. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's chosen us, right? But listen, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. How incredible is that? The God of the universe, who spoke it into being, chose to set his heart and his eyes and his love on us, not because we deserve it, but because he is love, right? So God answers us to keep his promises, to bless his people, and to display his glory. He is the only true God. This is the biggest one. This is the biggest one. I'm going to put this next one on the screen. This is from Exodus chapter 9. And this is God talking to Pharaoh this time. And he says this. He says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and stuck you, struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God will be glorified. Amen? He's going to get glory in Israel, or in Egypt, and he's going to get glory today. How we do church, how we make decisions, how we stay not following the culture the wrong way, he's going to get glory. God answers us for those reasons. Okay, so as I said, I met, I met Meg in um, uh, Chicago, and we moved down here. We actually didn't move here right away. We had a child. Uh, her name was Maddie, and uh, she was nine months old, and then we were like, yeah, you know what, we really need some free babysitting. So then we decided to move down. So we came down here, and here's a picture of Maddie when she was nine months old, right? She's, she's adorable. She still is. And uh, this is a picture of me with her at the day this story happened. And I haven't changed a bit, right? I look exactly the same. Um, so you, we, we were down here. It was hot, shocker. And so we went to the pool in Clayton. And uh, this was at the pool. And you could see we were trying to be good parents. It was our first one, right? With our fourth one, maybe not so much. But with our first one, you can see we were over in the really shallow end. And Maddie's sitting there. And the water just comes up to her waist, right? Trying to be good parents. And so here's what happened. We're all sitting there doing our thing, and Maddie's sitting up, and I don't know what I was doing. We didn't have Candy Crush back then, so I, I don't know what I was doing. But Maddie loses her balance, and she falls backwards. Okay? So she's underwater, and she's nine months old. She can't help herself. She can't scream out because she's underwater. And she's in trouble. And so the only thing that happened, now all this happened in about a nanosecond, right? But in the memory of a dad, it took like 10 years. She falls backwards, and then we make eye contact. And she, her eyes look at me and say, help me. Rescue me. Maddie cried out to the only one around her who could help her. The Israelites cried out to the only God who could help, him, help them. And the same thing happens to us. We can cry out. Listen, if you're stuck in bondage this morning... If you're stuck under sin, if you're like Maddie, if you're stuck underwater, if you're tired of following the world, 
if you want a better way, if you want freedom, and maybe you already are a believer, but maybe you're still struggling with sin somewhere, somehow, know that God answers our cry for help. God knows you. God loves you. He hasn't left you. Listen, God alone can free us from captivity. We have only to reach out for help. We got the easy part, right? We just have to cry out. So let's finish our story and let's see how God is going to rescue the Israelites, all right? Our last point this morning is to see that God redeems me fully and finally. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 5, if you want to move there. So God is going to, now he's going to enact his mighty plan to redeem his people from slavery and captivity. Let's go to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Afterward, Afterward, Moses and Aaron, they went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his, vo obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and his brother Aaron, they go for the first of many times to Pharaoh and says, Yeah, it's time for us to check out. We're done. And Pharaoh's like, Yeah, no thanks. You're my free labor." You're not going anywhere, right? So then God enacts a series of huge judgmental disasters. They're called plagues to prove and show that he alone is God over all creation and life itself. We're going to go through nine plagues. We're not going to literally cover them. He goes through, the, Moses goes through nine plagues over several chapters until we get to the final plague. That's in Exodus 11. So go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. Here we're going to see the last and most powerful plague that uh, God enacts. In Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses, he goes to Pharaoh again and he says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. This last plague is going to finally break Pharaoh, and he's going to let God's people go, as if he had a choice, right? I think sometimes passages like this can be hard for us. We can wrestle with this. If all we know of God is that he's holy, or that he's love, and that he's mercy, why would God do this? That's not the God from the New Testament. It is. God is love and mercy, but he's a holy God. He's a just God. And holiness and sin, they cannot coexist, right? But here's what's awesome. This holy God provides a way out. He is holy and loving and merciful at the exact same time. So God says to the Israelite people, he says, listen, I want you to kill a lamb without blemish. Take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on the door frames. And then in Exodus 12, verse 12, here's what he says to the people of Israel. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So the Israelites are protected by a conscious act of faith here. And there's something we got to see, right? It's not the blood that's painted on the door frames that saves them, right? It's not that. It's believing that God is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, that led them to paint the blood on the door frames, right? God's people have always been saved by their faith, and then the works come, right? We're saved by faith. And listen, that lamb, that lamb without blemish, is a picture of Jesus for us this morning. Jesus was our pure, spotless lamb. He was free of sin. He was sacrificed to save us from our final judgmental plague. And he rescues us from bondage. Let's read one more passage, this time from 1 Peter. Chapter 1, and I want you to see this. 1 Peter, Peter writes, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That's a lot of words, and it's saying this. We're called to live differently because we've been bought from our sinful life. And how have we been bought? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not even close to good enough. That's not going to get it done. But we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There it is. He's our lamb. Jesus Christ, our spotless lamb, he died a brutal death on the cross to take our punishment in our place to fully, completely, and finally redeem all of those who call on him and put his trust, put their trust in him. The whole Bible is leading to that moment on the cross. Okay, so some of you type A people, if I was sitting there, I'd be like, I haven't heard anything you've said because you left Maddie drowning in a pool. <laughs> okay, so just for you guys, let me just finish that story, right? So Maddie's stuck underwater, we make eye contact, and she's crying out for help, and I'm feeling like the worst dad in the world for like a hot second, and then of course, what do I do, right? What would any dad do? I go and pull her up, pull her close to me, I love you, are you okay? Let me just hold you. And I am a broken, sinful man. But I would do anything for my children. Right? Parents, you know that. How much more would a perfect, holy, loving God rescue us? Of course he wants to rescue us, right? This morning, if you're stuck in a place where you're like, mm-mm, God can't save me from that. He, ha he hasn't seen that. He has, and he loves you. When you cry out to God, he will redeem you fully and finally. Listen, God rescues me, so I will worship him. God rescued the people of Israel from captivity, and he continues that rescue today. So as the worship team comes up, I want to talk about the last part of this point, worship. When the Israelites, when they're leaving Egypt, they're making their way out, and they experience one more God-glorifying miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. And I wish I had time to go over that, but I don't. Check it out. It's in Exodus. When they make their way through, and listen, they are, they're through all these years of bondage, all these years of ruthless slavery, all this stuff, and they finally get through it, and they're free of the Egyptians' 
forever. They're free of bondage. They respond in the only way that they can. They worship. They worship. The entire chapter of Exodus 15 is one gigantic praise song to the Lord. Okay, now listen. If you were here last week, there ain't no way I'm singing this. Okay? I'm going to leave that to Pastor Micah. I want you to come back next week. You don't want to hear me sing. Okay? But let me just read this over you. These are the words of the people who are rescued from bondage. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That's us. The Lord will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Listen, here's how it works. We mess up. God saves us. And then we worship. If you haven't been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb this morning, claim that right now. I would love to talk to you, Pastor Micah, Phil, any of us, we'd love to talk to you if you have questions or if you want to just be prayed over with you. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you have made him first, then our only real response to being rescued from bondage is to worship, to ascribe glory and greatness to the only God. So we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to stand up. And I just want you guys to think about what he's done and how he has rescued us. And then let's worship. Let's pray. Father God, you are glory. You are holy. You are worthy. There is none like you. Thank you, Father, for saving us, for rescuing us from bondage. Lord, this morning, if there is someone who doesn't know you, I pray they would be gripped by your greatness. But Lord, for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to stay pure, stay strong, to, be, to keep our identity in you and not the world. And Lord, help us to glorify you. Receive our worship this morning. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.